1975, Jaws was released. It is routinely regarded as one of the greatest films of all time and is generally credited with creating the concept of the summer blockbuster. In 1978, in an obvious cash grab, Jaws 2 was released, failing to have lightning strike a second time, but presenting a generally enjoyable film. In 1983, Jaws 3D was released, shamelessly attempting to take advantage of a gullible audience. By 1987, there was no pretense of quality as Lorraine Gary and Michael Caine cashed paychecks for sleepwalking through a pointless and incredulous sequel. In 2016, Paul Spatero created Is It Jaws, in which he and a group of rotating guest hosts discuss new and old movies and place them up against the Jaws scale, which ignores some elements of the actual films and sets forth a rating scale. Jaws, an all-time great classic film. Jaws 2, an enjoyable film with some flaws but worthy of multiple viewings. Jaws 3, a moderately enjoyable film. And finally, Jaws 4, a bad movie. Please join Paul and his guests as they ask the ever-important question, Is it Jaws? You've all been missing, presumed dead for five and a half years. Aren't you seeing things, hearing things in your head? You have some kind of expiration date? June 2nd, 2024. I had a calling, it was awful. Everything was swallowed by ash and destruction. It's all connected. It's way it wasn't an accident. We're supposed to save the passengers together. Our death date is in 18 months. We have to follow every lead. We're missing something. Two years ago, I touched the tail fin and disappeared again, and then came back five years older. I need to remember what happened. What is it? It's not just a box. It's the black box. Another passenger was murdered. I think they just killed her. getting close to being dead. Have we had this wrong the whole time? You didn't fly into the storm. It flew into us. It chose us. A direct link to divine consciousness. Whatever happens, we'll get through it together. and welcome to Is It Yours? I'm Paul Spataro and I have the pleasure this time out of having one of my good friends, Mr. Romeo Tarone, join me. Uh, 
I've long wanted to add, to have some filmmakers on the show, but there's only one that I actually have been friends with for 40 years. So I, <laughs> I, I don't have anybody else to, to offer you except for Romeo. Uh, but it's my absolute pleasure to have you on here. How are you, my friend? Oh, I'm great, Paul. Thanks for having me. It's uh, wonderful. So just, just by way of background, Romeo and I went to high school together. We went to college together. We were amateur filmmakers together. And uh, well, while my filmmaking career just kind of died a slow and <laughs> agonizing death, Romeo has gone on to, uh, in my opinion, great success uh, on shows much. such as True Blood and, and Dexter and uh, Constantine and uh, Taken. And I'm trying to think of what else. The Tick. The Tick, uh, yeah. And now, now, uh, currently in, in the spotlight with Manifest. And I'm going to just give a quick background that I was not watching Manifest. Somebody had told me they, that they were watching it, they liked it. Uh, Tina and I watched the very first episode and thought, eh, and we walked away. And then Romeo told me, well, I'm going to be working on Manifest. And you started late in season two, I think? I came in and did the finale of season two. And then they asked me to be the producer director on season three, which was pre-pandemic, they asked. And then while I waited out throughout the whole pandemic, it was like fishing with a, a hook in a lip of a fish and slowly <laughs> pulling it in. And it finally uh, came out and I ended up doing season three during the pandemic and season four, who was still in the under pandemic restrictions. And we're going to we're going to back that way up to see about how you originally got up and running on everything. But uh, once you told me that you were... Uh involved in it we said you know what let's give this another try and i gotta say we our, our original meh opinion uh really turned really quickly and we we started to get into it and we really liked the show and it's just I, again I'll, I'll get into some of the logistics of what happened with the show with you uh in a little while but but when you first came on in season two uh you said you did the finale so they were already up and running they had their producers in in line how do they bring you up to speed to come in and do the finale, which is always well, a big it was episode. it was a replacement thing. Uh, the director that originally was um, slated to do the episode had a uh, a medical emergency of some sort in his family, so he had to back out at the last minute. Um, then they called me and I came in and did it. So basically, it's it's uh, like with any guest director, the producer director, who is actually directing. The episode before me so i had no contact with him whatsoever <laughs> because he was busy directing um joe uh, uh i forgot joe's last name i'm so terrible with names but uh so i never really spoke with him but with the producers they came they bring me through the whole thing they start talking about the concept of what we wanted to do i mean in season two obviously there's a finale on an ice lake and you think ice lake you think oh my god it's going to be freezing and how are we can actually shoot on ice and so we had to piece together a lot of the um the way we incorporate special effects and practical effects to create this a uh, this pretty complicated effect and i had to do it within the seven days i had to prep so you get just to back it up a little bit, just to back it up a little bit, like as a guest director, you get kind of parachute in, right? They're finishing up one episode, the team that you're working with, which is usually an AD and a producer team uh, you're working with and a cinematographer. If there's two cinematographers, uh, they kind of the night before they were working all night and then they, the next day they land and it's your first day of prep. And usually you'll go into uh, a concept meeting and you'll go through the whole script, uh, having gotten the script maybe a couple of days before. And you read it through and then the concept meeting, you get the feel of what 
the expectations are, uh, what the actual abilities of the crews and, and, and the ability of what the, what the budget is to be able to solve these problems that were written on this, on uh, the page. And my biggest problem was there was people going through ice and landing in water. And then there was a whole underwater sequence under the ice. So, um, that immediately meant pool work. Uh, and then we had to figure out how to put the ice and the pool together and then finding a frozen lake, which we didn't have a frozen lake. So we took a, uh, it was at a Boy Scout camp in Staten Island and we rolled out cheap white carpet and we laid it out just where we would see people. Like, so when someone's walking out, they're completely covered by the white, the way the camera's angles are. So that anything with visual effects, you really want the thing that the actual person is on or walking on to be real. And then the rest of the world, you can kind of create it. So we created this white field and, uh, and then created moments where the ice would break through. And I would be on a, a, and also in Staten Island, in a prison in Staten Island, there's a pool that we shot at. And in this pool, uh, we created the top layer of the ice and we used uh, green screens to extend to where our lake was. So it was really complicated. I have to say my first day of, of manifest was like super complicated and a lot of, uh, problem solving and, you know, figure out how we're going to do it. Uh, and then you go through your prep and then you go to locations and you find locations and then you, you make sure that, okay, these are the pieces that are going to fit. The ADs create the schedule. So you got to do a certain amount of work in a, in a day, which is a lot. Usually it's usually like seven to 10 pages, depending on the dialogue, which is a lot. And you think if it's like, if you divide how many pages are in the script by the number of days we shoot, which is nine. And then you kind of come up with, Oh God, I got to do this much work. So, so with you parachuting in to, to take over, how much is kind of laid out for you? Like, you know, we already have this planned out. You you just do what we kind of, you know, you execute our plan. And how much freedom do you have to change that plan? It, it It's interesting. There are, there are a lot of things that are laid out in the show because of the nature of the show, what came before and everything. There's certain decisions and uh, sometimes it's with actors uh, like, you know, uh, People have already been cast, so it's not like you're dealing with casting of certain actors. I think my whole show, everyone was cast. There was no actors who were new to the show on that episode, so I didn't have to deal with casting at that moment. Um, a lot of it is like, this is how we usually handle this. This is how we handle the mythology. This is how we handle the magic, or like, you know, how magic is magic. And we always tried to, it was stressed to me that we wanted to remain in a real world so that the fantasy part of it uh, has some weight to it. And it's not just um, lay on top visual effects that kind of are cartoon-like. And they really try to make everything as visual as possible. Um, yeah. See, now that's something as a consumer of fantasy materials and comic books and fantasy movies and books and whatever, is I've always gone with the theory of, as far as magic goes, Set the ground rules of what the magic is. Set the ground rules for what the magic can affect and what it can't. Live in those rules, and then I will accept the magic. Yes. And that's not easy. That's that's so much easier said than it is done. It's it's a <laughs> lot easier, especially if you're writing without a ending, like you're writing a TV series that you're not sure where it goes, and sometimes you can change the magic to uh, or the superpowers uh, to bend to your will of making the story whatever you want. But this would manifest, it was so set, like the actual ending was known uh, to Jeff Rake, 
uh, right from the beginning. Like he understood his whole trajectory. He, it was a, I believe a six or seven season. I think it was six seasons he wanted to do. And we ended up doing it in four, which four being two, basically uh, broken up into two seasons. Well, two 10 episode seasons, which is not even a full complement of episodes. Yeah. What's a full season now? Like 10 episodes seems to be what a full season is now. 10 is generally a full streaming episode, a full streaming season. Yeah. It used to be like when we did Dexter, it was uh, 12 and True Blood was 12. And that was like a season for a premium uh, cable channel. Then when we ended on True Blood, um, Game of Thrones started up with HBO and they cut through blood, True Blood down by two episodes. However, there was an, a really weird thing that happened in True Blood was it was $8 million an episode, so it was a $100 million endeavor. They would make that back in Blu-ray DVD sales. They put them for like 110 bucks a pop. And whether it was 12 episodes or 10 episodes, they still made the same money on it. So that was a really unbelievable payback, which I don't think exists anymore because now no one buys, runs out and buys the set of Blu-rays. Everyone streams it. Oh, yeah, I can see behind you. You, you might be someone who goes to not Not too often, but, uh, you know, when it's something that I have difficulty streaming or, you know, whatever, I, I still occasionally will, will buy uh, physical media when it, when it suits me, put yeah. it that way. I'm I'm not as married to it as I once was. I'm happy to stream most of it, and I'm, I also have a hard drive with digital copies of a lot of stuff on it. So yeah, it's it's a different world, and it's a constantly evolving world as far as that goes. Yeah. Uh, but you know, but now there's you know, I guess which there weren't originally when Game of Thrones came on. Now you'll have something where it'll be like, oh, if you want to watch this episode of Manifest and you don't subscribe to well, I guess actually Manifest is not the right answer for that. Yeah, certain certain television shows, you know, you you missed it when it was on and you want to see it for $1.99, you can watch it now. You know, there's, there's different revenue yeah. streams that come into play. And it's, a, again, like I said, it's a constantly evolving thing. And who knows where it's going to end up. Eventually, they're just going to probably just beam the, the thoughts into your brain for you and you'll be done. And you'll have to pay a subscription price to get it into your brain. And if it's there, then they'll be able to block it in your brain if you didn't pay. And if you didn't like it, you'll have to pay to take it, have them take it out of your brain. Right. Yeah. But, so but, so uh, 10 episodes is becoming a like kind of the streaming season now. And that's what Netflix kind of does. And uh, we were again, you know, the story that uh, NBC uh, canceled us. Uh, we had decent ratings. But what are ratings now? They're, they're, they're always chasing the 18 to 35 year old demographic. We were like in a, I don't know, 0.7 or 0.6 which, you know, is in, I, you know, again, in the history of television, they, they, the ratings have gone lower and lower and lower because the, the audience has cut so many different ways now rather than just three channels. Um, yeah. So we got canceled and then Jeff Rake uh, got on, on a social media blitz. Uh, he, there was a lot of mega fans that were really supporting it and then it became a movement and then the save, uh, manifest you know to nbc became a thing and unbeknownst to anyone there was a deal for the first three seasons to go on to netflix um which no one knew about it got it landed on netflix and that's where all the 18 35 year olds were watching and as you and i have discussed in the past that amazes me because i wouldn't think you'd pull in a new audience of people who already know the show was canceled without the resolution being filmed. Yeah. 
that that to me is just amazing that you could pull in that audience and not only did you pull in that audience you pulled in a monumental audience uh, so that's that's incredibly impressive to me and it's where the advertisers were looking for right you're always looking for that 18 to 35 year olds but they're not watching network tv they're streaming everything and uh trying yeah. and, and using their parents accounts while they're doing it <laughs> uh, I, I can i can attest to that one. yes uh and for what it's worth uh I'll throw into the to the episode that my stepdaughter is a huge fan of Manifest, and when she found out that I was good friends with the director, she just couldn't wait to meet him. Uh, so, if you know, then she had to do the selfie with Romeo, and then uh, uh, I'm, I'm going to actually jump ahead that this past summer, uh, we you know Romeo and I got together and and we managed to bring her down uh, to a uh, location in Manhattan where they were filming, uh, which. For me, it was a lot of fun, I have to admit. I'm not going to just try and make it sound like I'm somehow a martyr that I went down and did that. But for her, it was like a thrill. And we managed to, to meet up with Melissa and JR, who were, I can't, I can't state enough how accommodating and nice they were. You know, yes. these are people who are stars of the show. They could just kind of say, yeah, hi, and turn around and walk away. But they still, they talked with us. They took pictures with us. They yeah. were very, very friendly. No, they're great. And and it's it's lovely when you have a, a great uh, group of people that you're working with. And uh, Josh Dallas and Melissa, as far as being one and two on the call sheet, um, they they really set a beautiful standard of uh, inclusiveness. And, and they're just really, they're just nice people, which is so nice uh, to work with. And... And I learned afterwards, this is not, I didn't realize it at the time, but you know, I, I, once I start getting into something, I start looking things up and whatever. Melissa and JR both have some geek credibility because Melissa had a small part in Star Trek Beyond mm -hmm. and JR played the character Wildcat on the series Arrow. Oh, so, I didn't even know that. That's so funny. So there, there's some geek credibility for the two of them, and you know that that my my audience would probably say, "Oh, that's pretty cool." Yeah, and uh, and they love to sit and, and watch, so it's so great. That's the best thing about it. The audience is kind of um, for that mystery science fiction because I kind of don't know where this really lands. This is like a hybrid. You know, it was always it was always pitched as. Um, uh, this is us meets lost. It was a family drama in a mystery <laughs> kind of setting. And that's somewhere I could throw out to you that this shortening of the uh, episodes, uh, you know, I don't know that it's a total plus because to go from six or seven seasons down to four, you're cramming a lot of stuff in in that last 20 episodes. But just the same, uh, when I was watching Lost and they were doing initially whatever 26 episodes in a season uh the first couple of seasons if you watched through them you'd say you know what there's five episodes there that you could just have left out but they had to come up with storylines to kind of keep it going uh to fill that that quota so i do think it is better to go into it streamlined uh and have that limited number of episodes but in this particular instance, I think you guys would have been better off if you had known from day one that you were going to have this number of episodes. Yeah. And this way you wouldn't have to cram quite as much story into the last 20. Right. But we were lucky we had 20 to cram it in. There was a moment where we would do a, a two hour movie and try to do it like that's like Jeff was trying to figure out a way to complete manifest, whether by hook or by crook. And then um, I think uh, originally Netflix turned us down. And then NBC was like, all right, we'll, we'll, we'll do it again. We'll do another season. Like they were going to pick us up again. And then 
I think they were going to give us 16 episodes and, uh, then Netflix kind of countered with, uh, a 20 episode thing, a 20 episode season and, uh, to end it. And so Jeff took it because obviously there was more pieces on that one. However, it's like, because we went to Netflix, it didn't become like all of a sudden our budgets went up and everything. It's actually, if you really broke it down to 20 episodes that we were making at the end compared to the budgets that we had for the NBC show, it was actually a lower number per episode. So there was a lot of belt tightening and a lot of things to have to be figure out clever ways of doing things so that we could kind of create a very cinematic show, which was, again, my first uh, coming onto the show is I always try to give it a more of a cinematic kind of theme and feel to it. And that was uh, right from the second uh, finale, season, season two finale. And then season three, we upgraded everything and, and as far as like visually. And then season four, Netflix actually had a keener eye, especially with visual effects. And it would basically kick us, kick things back to us, whereas NBC would just approve anything because they, you know, their, their level of uh, visual effects kind of quality control was uh, lower at the time. That's oh, that's actually pretty interesting. And then you do also run into the potential for problems, which I guess did not work, did not come to be. But you know, you you get canceled, and then you have I don't know how many months it was between when it got canceled and when you know there was finally the arrangement with Netflix. And you have Melissa, you have Josh, you have Jr. Who are all now with a much higher profile than they were four years ago. And you run the serious risk that now they're involved in some other project by the time this gets done. And they're like, you know what? I'm not available anymore. Too bad. Uh, no, that didn't happen. But I think that that was a serious risk that could have happened easily. Yeah. Matt, uh, Matt Long was in a pilot, an NBC pilot. And so it became like, will we have him available to us enough to do season four with Matt as Zeke? Uh, and then the pilot didn't get picked up, so it all worked out for us. But again, that was a moment Zeke might not have been in season four at all. Um, yeah, and I'm sure that that gives you all sorts of logistic problems if it happens. Yeah. So, okay, now how are we going to script this to to make sense that he's not here? You know. Right. Yeah, and it's it's like exactly, and then justifying all that, and then keeping the mythology. I have to say, uh, uh, Jeff Rake was really adamant about. Uh, keeping the mythology and weaving it together and trying to make it all make sense. So when people look back at different episodes, they would see different characters and understand that there was a connection to the end. Like it's all connected was taken very, very seriously. Uh, right. It wasn't just flippantly like, Oh, look, let's just throw anything there and everyone will understand the connections or we'll, you know, we'll make up connections. It wasn't like that at all. There was like moments like in the premiere of season four where there's a death certificate and you look on the death certificate and there's a windmill and that becomes part of a, a huge calling for the first episode of, of season four. That was actually there when they found what an actual New York state death certificate looked like. There was a windmill on it and it wasn't, and it was, you know, trying to connect it with a windmill, but it was already there. And that was one of those kind of serendipitous things that's happened a lot all through this whole thing by weaving the mystery together we found so many things that came to us and things that were just there that was just amazing. That's that's pretty cool. Now, I just want to get back to a little bit with your participation. So you come from parachuting in, you do that final episode. How does that 
progress from there to becoming a producer and obviously a much more integral part of the whole creative process in season three? Well, um, I was asked to be, I, again, knowing that I was a producer director, although I just did an episode for them, uh, it was, you know, basically if they wanted to get me, they needed to hire me as a producer director. And they, and they, they were really happy to do that right away. Um, and that happened like March. I had a meeting with, uh, Jeff and Jackie, uh, and I think it was February 2020. And then March 2020, everything shut down. So I had that meeting with them and then we went through the whole pandemic. And then it was like, I don't know, we don't know, we don't know. Like, you know, we weren't even sure if, uh, season three was picked up with NBC. And it was just hung, hung, hung. And then finally it caught. And then we ended up doing season three. I came on as producer director and I really became, uh, in charge of the visual look of the show. Um, we had, um, uh, Sam Freshly, uh, was the production designer who had done, uh, who had just come on new in season three. And so together we were the keepers of the look and the improvement of the look and always trying to make everything more cinematic and, uh, try not to get into the kind of close up, close up, wide shot, medium shot, cut away, you know, type of rhythm of a television kind of editing shots so we really kind of i always make a joke that i can work really quickly because i only shoot the good shots and uh <laughs> so that's what i always try to do and i try to press with two our both our cinematographers to make sure you're getting the good shots make sure we have scope we we, we would always uh jeff jeff rake would always bring up uh arrival as a type of uh, film that has spectacle but yet it's really an intimate story about a very personal, intimate story about a family relationship. And that was a, a big thing when the directors would come in, we would kind of give them that note, say, give us some big spectacle shots, give us some scope, and then make sure that we're in tight on our um, family drama. Like, you know, and, and, and we would do a uh, Friday night light style of like the family drama, which would be handheld cameras, multiple handheld cameras and let the actors play the scenes out. So that was one way to get through a lot of dialogue quickly, uh, but it also gave it this feeling of urgency for the family. And then there's almost a slightly documentary style feel to it that you feel like you're right there with them. So those are like the marching orders. Does everything line up perfectly with that? Maybe, maybe not, but there's a direction that we try to bring it into so that it felt like you were watching uh, a film rather than a television show where you kind of know what's going to happen. So that's, that's pretty interesting. See, I have this tendency, which is probably not the best uh, best method for somebody who's going to give reviews and critiques of things, is I have this tendency to want to allow myself to just be pulled into the, into the story. And so when I watch an episode of Manifest mid-season two to mid-season three and I compare them I could tell you yes that felt more cinematic that felt more sprawling whatever but I couldn't probably give you the breakdown of oh that had these close-ups yeah. and it had that, because I'm trying to let myself get totally submerged into the episode because that's the best way for me to watch something a lot of times if I'm going to critique it if I'm going to do a, a review I need to sit and watch it twice because the first time I'm going to let myself just watch it and the second time uh, then I can kind of pull myself back and look and see how it's made. And it, it brings me to, to just kind of a little anecdote was back when we were at St. John's, uh, I had a teacher for film appreciation uh, 
I don't know if you took his class or not, but at one point during the, the semester, he showed the Fort Knox scene from uh, what you call uh, Goldfinger. And, and he said, I want you to look at the production values and how they put, did put the set together and how the cuts are made. He said, but I guarantee you 90% of the class is just going to get pulled into the story and not be able to even see those things. And it's exactly what yeah. happened. Well, that, that's good. That's, I think that's what it, uh, if Manifest does that, I think that's fantastic. I think that's what we're here to do. We're here to kind of grab the viewer's mind. And what I realize is the path that we create as the plot of the show is one line, but every moment on that line, there could be like five or six different directions that the viewer starts kind of extrapolating on thinking like whether they're just interested in understanding. And and as humans, we want to try to anticipate what's coming on. Uh, But we kind of create these pathways of like, Oh my God, that look must've mean this. And there's so many things that as a viewer, it's like you're not passive as a viewer. It's not just passing over you. You're processing. And that's why I realized sometimes you just have to give a little glint of something and it could send the viewer in a little bit of other direction and maybe not understand or see what's really coming. So when I read a script now and I read the script every day, like, you know, when we get a new script, I try to read the first one as reading it as story rather than reading it as, oh, shit, how am I going to do that, uh, which I find helps a lot. And the same thing when I get my first cuts, like, you know, after you shoot, like, so again, you shoot, for, you, you prep for seven days, you shoot for eight or nine days usually. Um, the editor, after the last day of dailies, so once they get their dailies, they, the editor has four days to create what they call the assembly or the editor's cut. And uh, which is really just thrown together. You know, he looks at the script. He just throws things. The assistants are picking things. There's there's uh, favorite shots that I'll always choose or takes. I'll always choose on set. They'll just throw those in. And when I see the first assembly, I always joke. It's like I usually see my career flash before my eyes because there's, ah, this is a pile of crap. How am I going to put this all together? But I always try to watch it end to end without critiquing it and trying to like freak out on the mistakes or pausing because I want to see if the whole story is being told and then find the areas that my mind wanders or um, it doesn't tell the story that I'm trying to tell or what's scripted and then I break it down and then I'll well, the way I've been doing it is because everything's been done on Skype and on, on um, Zoom uh, I would meet with the editors in the morning or whether it's on Zoom or on phone call uh, they would send it to me the night before. I'd obsess over it the night before and just watch it over and over again, break my notes down, then have it. Your wife must love it. Yeah, this. well, you know, you know, you do where you have to do it. Um, <laughs> the the um, once I get my notes, I give it to the editor in the morning. It usually takes like an hour. The first one's about an hour and a half of just going through the whole thing, and then they'll do as many of the notes uh, that I came up with uh, as they can, and they'll send it to me the next night, and I'll I'll just do that process four times. Uh, usually by the fourth day, I'm looking at takes of, uh, is there a better performance of this or is there a better way of hearing this line? And like I try to do those smaller kind of, um, rather than the micro, uh, the macro of the whole thing. And now I'm looking at the, the smaller pieces and seeing, oh, maybe, you know, maybe there's a better look or something like that. And then once like that happens, I hand it in and it goes out to executive producers and then they do their notes and cuts, which I usually try to stay away from. Because once I put my stuff out there, it's hard for me to 
hear other people's opinions. <laughs> but do, do you ever find yourself where, you know, say Jeff, since he's, I guess, got the final Yes, he does. So, so he comes in and he says, you know, Romeo, I like this shot better than this one. Let's swap this out. Do you ever find yourself in a position where you say, you know what, this is this is a spot where I'm going to actually try and make the presentation I, to explain why I disagree? I've, I've had um, a few moments like that, but I've learned that, especially if you're a guest director coming in, that they're they're on their own process and they're trying to create the product that's going to get approvals for the next level, right? Between network, first you got to go through studio and then through network. So. It's not just, okay, let's make the most creative filmmaking we possibly can. It's like I have to – there's certain boxes that have to be checked off to get the next level of approval, and I understand that. So to go in there and say, no, no, you're ruining my film. This is like – it's not really mine. I'm a, I'm a craftsperson coming in, creating something for someone else. So you have to kind of let it go. And uh, But then by the time we get to season three, you're not a guest anymore. You're part of the process. Yeah. Uh, now, as part of the process, do you get involved in any way about as far as how the pacing is going to go episode to episode to bring the story along, uh, along excuse me, or, uh, you know, get involved with, well, I don't know if this scene works here. Maybe we should be doing this later in the season or whatever. Does, it, like, does that enter into it at all or do you just accept the scripts I, and then work with them one by one? I, I think because the way the writer's room was set up in on 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 manifest uh, with Jeff Rake in charge of it. And he had such a clear idea of, of the progression of it. There wasn't, I, I inter episode kind of, Oh, we should move this to that. I mean, things like that have happened, but it's not what I would immediately um, chime in on. Uh, that's the writer's room. They deal with all that. I would have suggestions within my episode or within the episodes. Hey, maybe this should start this way. Or I would do that in the editing Sometimes you take things and you, you switch the order and it makes it flow better. Um, but no, they were pretty tight and they were like, we, we, we had very little improvisation on, on the set. You know, it was all about strictly like get these lines and, and get it exactly the way it's said. So again, the script goes through a process, right? They write the script. It goes get studio notes. Then they have to adjust for the studio notes. Then it goes to network and the network is notes. And then by the time it gets to uh, the script gets to production, there's all these hoops that they had to jump through and things added that you think, wow, why did they add that? And then you realize it was a note that they were taking from someone else. So there's a lot of chiefs in the involved in it. So you have to tread lightly sometimes because you want to be a nice guest sometimes. You don't want to like tell them how stupid they are for ruining your film. <laughs> You're not going to get another job. So there's a delicate <laughs> I walk could, there. I can uh, see where that works. Yeah. Uh, so now as you're, Doing season three, putting together season three, you know, planning it out. Is there any thought process to, hey, we don't know if we're going to get four more seasons. Maybe we got to kind of plan for that a little bit somehow. We, or is it just, hey, you know, let's do other season the way we want to do it and then we'll pick it up, where, you know, where the chips fall? Well, season three, we thought we were in good shape. We're coming back from the pandemic, right? So everything shut down. And we were a show that this didn't get canceled because of the pandemic. A lot of shows did. A lot of shows didn't make it across the divide of the pandemic. Uh, it was better to just cut cut your losses. Uh, but Manifest stayed on. And once they did it, it became more about how are we going to shoot this during a pandemic? 
and it became a lot. Like there was one moment where we were going to shoot everything upstate in a um, in a studio. I think they were called River Studios, and they were um, we were going to do it all upstate and create a bubble. And so all the locations were going to be right near it, and we were going to shoot in the stages, and we weren't going to have no one was going to leave the bubble. That was the extreme beginning of season three. And uh, the studio that we were going to go move to uh, didn't have the proper HVAC system. And because of like the supply chain issues, that HVAC system wasn't going to be ready for us. So we had to turn it around and, and go back to Silver Cup and work in New York City, which in the end, I'm glad we did. It was a lot more difficult. But in the end, I'm glad we did because a bubble situation, I, I don't particularly think would be great however the situation we were in if someone hit positive on a covid test then we'd have the contact tracing just like every business had to deal with and we would lose like the whole camera department and now we have to replace the camera department and things would you know all these healthy people who weren't sick were getting knocked out you know so Mm -hmm. it was it was difficult then there's also on set Right. How far away can we have the actors without masks on together? Like, even though they've been tested in the morning, like there's there's all sorts of things that we thought we'd have to use body doubles or or try to cheat using lens compression, like longer lenses to make people look like they're closer together. Forget about hugs and kisses and stuff like that. We kind of write everything out. Uh, and then we we as we got in it then the vaccine happened things got uh, a little easier but the restrictions we were all still wore masks on set so that was hard season three was hard in that sense so then you, you know you leave off season three with kind of a cliffhanger with uh all of a sudden i'm drawing a blank uh josh dallas's wife getting killed yes, and, Grace. and yeah that was angelina running off with the baby and 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 i'm gonna just interrupt my own flow here to mention angelina is to me is incredible casting yes. because she comes off in the beginning as this angel and by the end she's psycho yeah and it's really just like a progression as it goes along and you know i do have this problem i i, I think we were talking about it when i was on set in that you know i in my head i still think of myself as like in my 20s so when I see Angelina, I'm thinking she's like, what is she, like 12? Yeah. I mean, she, she's like 25 years old. Yeah, she's, she's an in her adult. 20s. And, yeah. And it's just like, it, I have to like kind of pull myself back and say, wait a minute, I'm not in their age group anymore. And I, I think we were talking about with Melissa when uh, you were talking to her about the honeymooners. And she was like, yeah, yeah, I never saw yeah, that. And it just boggled my mind. Like, you know, 30 or something. Like, so they, 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 that reference, that point of reference that we had, you know, 50s more uh, <laughs> make it uh it's weird it, it, we definitely have but it's hey. but it's an interesting thing though i have to say all our references are still here because you can regurgitate them and you can pop it up on youtube and it, it, like there's all these old shows that a whole younger group of kids kind of grew up with because of nick at night and and different places so they like the old shows are still around uh, so the, it's, it's, yeah, it's just a matter of having people who have mix. the desire to see it. Yes. <laughs> That's the harder part. But Holly, Holly as Angelina was really great. She came from the Americans and she was the daughter on the Americans and she played everything very, um, low key and, and internal. And we had to kind of, you know, really push her to draw things out, get her to yell, get her to find this evil side that she did really well. But, but again, when she first, when you first introduce her as a character, or actually, I think 
I think you have a flash from her, from her early, and then she becomes more significant as it goes along. Yes. But when you first see her, she seems like the sweetest angel. She really did. Yeah. And to 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 have her kind of convert from the angel to the devil is is you know, and have it be accepted as you're watching it. I think that's that's a tall task, and and I think it was accomplished well. So I'll I'll give credit to the writers, I'll give the credit to the directors, and I'll give the credit to her. Yes. Um, Absolutely. Now she rose. She rose to the occasion, and it wasn't uh, arbitrary that this happened. This didn't just happen as a progression. Oh wow, she plays evil really well. Let's make her evil. It was it was set out to do that. So the premiere of season three, we were in Costa Rica, and we find her in Costa Rica, and she's in a you know in a dungeon that her parents have locked her up in. Which now we realize it was for good reason. But little did we know. Yeah, we went exactly. to save her. That's a great. That's yeah. a great twist yeah. too. Because because you think, oh my God, these parents are. Well, I mean, not that they're not insane. Yeah. But you you think there's no basis for what they did, and that she's again the total innocent, right. and she's just not. So it's you know, but uh, uh, that tangent aside. So now you, you you've get you've gotten renewed for for twenty episodes. How involved in the creative process? building up to starting to film are you at that point we um we usually start like eight weeks out in prep so before we start before we start shooting it's about eight weeks um that's gathering the crew building sets and getting everything so that was the whole thing like we had gotten rid of everything from season three because we were canceled so no sets were standing the police station was gone you know, we had all these standing sets, the um, the houses and all this stuff. So we had to figure out our inventory of what we did, and we needed to put um, Ben somewhere. Uh, we, we, we we knew they weren't going to stay in the house Grace was murdered in. So we, we had a set that was actually the only set that was still standing, which was um, – uh, I'm sorry, what's her name again? The old woman who owns uh, Evie's mother's house. God. So, which ended up that whole storyline where they took care of Evie's mom, and then uh, Ben, I'm sorry, uh, Melissa, Ma- Ma- Michaela, and Zeke lived there. Wow! So it's like bringing the names back is really hard for me. Um, so Beverly's house. So they lived in Beverly's house. So we had that set, and then we needed someplace else. And we we're like, okay, maybe he lives in a room upstairs in in one of the bedrooms, or we create a basement. And I remember in the discussion, the attic was perfect. Yeah, I remember coming up with the attic, thinking that's going to be a more interesting place to shoot in geographically. It also it just it just showed like where his mind was at that he was so, you know, he he didn't need the comfort, the creature comforts. He needed to be in this area with you know raw wood and everything. And I I think it it kind of gave you a better feeling for how his mind was working. And Sam Sam designed an attic that was an unbelievable like because it was it was beautiful. So we were able to shoot that, and then that created that set of season four kind of sets that we, we use. Um, so at this point, I guess you're more involved in the logistics of how you're going to execute what the writers are giving you, and you're not... 99% of it is logistics when you come down to it. It really is. Like, you know, you're, you're yes, there's a creative thread that you want to keep, and there's a theme, and there's all things, but... When it comes down to it, it's like, okay, we have this location here. Now I have to find two other locations near here that are close enough to what we need so that we don't have to move the company twice in a day. So the, so the way I'm seeing this, and 
this may be totally off, is Jeff Rake is now, you know, you get renewed. He's going to be involved with the writer's room for a while to kind of say, okay, this is, you know, this is the storyline that we're going to have to do. This is how we're going to pace it through 20 episodes. This is, you know, what you're going to do. Okay, you guys start writing. Now I'm going to move over to Romeo and the other producers and the directors, and we're going to talk about how we're going to take that vision and put it onto film. Yeah. Is that yeah. pretty much accurate? So once we have a script and production gets the script, then it becomes like breaking it down. Um, Harvey Walden, which was our line producer, who's the guy dealing with the money, he would break it down and say, we can't afford this, we can't afford this, or you're like, this is going to cost X amount of dollars, and we have to kind of figure out ways to do these things. Um, so that we were very, very precise in how we were spending our money. Like I said, we were our budget was actually lower than when we were on NBC, spread out to the whole 20 episodes. So when we came to film, to, to watch you film, and we each had a bottle of water, we put up your budget. Yes, you did. You did. But it's okay. The water is accounted for. Like, you know, that's that's accounted for. But it's like, you know, certain things, like what, what do you, whether you use visual effects or, or not, and how you shoot things. A lot of times shooting things practical is the best thing to do. Um, telling the story in a concise way so people could follow the mystery was really, really important. Because um, the thread runs all the way through to the end, which is fantastic. Um, and, and then I think when we always think about the review, when people go back and revisit an episode after they've gone to like certain end, like right now it's the halfway through season four is the ending for everyone at the moment. But if you go back, there are things that are correlate. Like, and, and then, and like I said, Jeff was always, and the writers were always very adamant, making sure it all correlated to the point where if we went back to a location, we couldn't just cheat it. It's because the living room's a living room. Oh, really? You think we're going to know that's X amount? And he was like, no. The viewers are going to go back and look at it and see that it's not the same place. So we have to shoot in the same place. So there was very strict um, kind of uh, marching orders to make sure you get this. And and Jeff would all along the way, like, so when you come in, you do a concept meeting, and that's where you kind of start figuring out things out. Then you do all your location scouting. And you have all your other meetings with all the heads of departments um, so that you go through the whole script with props. You go through the whole script with uh, special effects, visual effects and stunts like there are different meetings. You have meetings all day long. And then with Skype, it was just sitting. You know, sometimes I did it at home because we're just sitting in front of a computer. Um, then we go to a production meeting and that basically is basically saying, OK, this is everything we're going to do and this is how we're going to do it. So it's the concept and then production meetings at the end. In the middle of that. There's a tone meeting and Jeff was famous for having five to six hour tone meetings where he would go through every line of the script with the director and let him understand his expectations and let him understand the storytelling because it was so complex that. He had to understand the backstory of a lot of things or they had to understand the backstory. And so Jeff would meticulously go through every script. And I have to say, as a producer and as a director, it was just so helpful to know on the set. I have notes that I understand exactly what he wants rather than just kind of guessing what he wants. And so then I would be make sure that if I was on set and another director was directing, I was never a look over your shoulder and direct behind you kind of producer director. I would always do it all in the prep and try to give them as much information. And then once they were on the set, it's their set and they, they go off and do it. If something wasn't like, I'd get a call saying, Hey, we're not sure if this, we're doing this right. 
again, there was a lot of weird prop things. And is this the right way or should it be turned this way? And so there were answers that I would have to give sometimes on the spot or sometimes I had to call and find out what it is. But we were very, um, we were beholden to Jeff's vision, which I think makes it a really solitary kind of story because it's coming from one person rather than uh, an executive group. See, I think, at least from my viewing perspective, uh, through the whole series, there's been a bunch of, you know, there's a bunch of threads that have to get tied together. Uh, And I think because of the circumstances, at least this is me reading into it, because of the circumstances, now all of a sudden we got to, we got to, push along that pace a little faster because we got to get it done in 20 episodes. So now it's, it's, I'm going to give you the contrast between myself and Tina when we watch it, because I can allow myself to sit and go, you know, I'm sitting on a raft and I'm going along the river and you're taking me along and I'm going to see things and I'm going to say, Hmm, what's that over there? But I'm going to wait and see and give you a chance to explain it to me. And you might not explain it to me for another 19 episodes, but I'm going to do that. Whereas she'll say, why did he do that? I don't get it. I'm confused. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you got to wait. I said, this is this is not, this is us. Well, actually, this is us is not even a good example. This is not New Amsterdam, mm-hmm. where each episode is going to give you a story, and it's going to be all tied up by the end of the story. And the only things that are going to be kind of continuing from episode to episode are the interpersonal relationships of the characters. This is a story where really what it's going to turn out to be by the time it's done is a 50 some odd hour movie and you have to wait until the end to get to the conclusion and you have to be willing to say i don't understand why they're doing this i don't understand why the world is opening with molten lava but at some point they're going to explain it to me so right that's that's you know that's part of the challenge as a viewer i think uh and i think you know, if you to, like to, to be able to just let it happen if you like and care about the characters you'll stick with them throughout, even if you get a little confused or a little like pissed off or it goes in a direction like you never thought it should or would. Um, if you still like the characters, you'll, you'll be, you'll stay, you'll stick with it. But I'm going to compare it. You mentioned lost earlier. So I'm going to compare it in some ways to that in that lost that for everything I understand is they had a premise that they were going with but they really didn't have a conclusion planned. Uh, and again, they, they probably had to put more episodes in a season than they should have. Uh, and, and so there's some filler in there. But you went through the whole series waiting for a conclusion and waiting to find out if your own personal theories about what was going on were correct. And a lot of people, when it got to the end, were not satisfied with how it ended. And part of that, I think, is because they did a lot of it on the fly. Now... That's the way I walked away from it in whatever it was, 2009 or whenever they ended that series. Uh, And then during the pandemic, at some point when I was home forever, I decided, you know what, I'm going to do a rewatch of Lost on Hulu. And I started watching it through watching through it. And it was the characters that that made it worthwhile. Uh, And and then, you know, I I, I went with the theory of it's not the. you know, in this in this instance, it's not the destination; it's the journey. Yeah. And and for Lost, that was fine in my second viewing. Really, not so much in the first. Now, from what you're telling me, as far as how Jeff Rake has this planned out, I have kind of a higher expectation of not only the journey but the destination. 
Yeah, we we uh, we finished the finale October in the middle of October. We we finished it, so uh, it's going through the polishing process and VFX, and we'll see when they decide to uh, release the second half. But it's exciting. I have uh, in the first half of the season, I did episode uh, 401 and 410. In the second half, I did 11, 12, 15, and 20. And for what it's worth to anybody who's who's uh, listening, I was there to see them film a little bit of Eleven, although I was not able to be an extra because it was in the middle of the summer for us. But on the show, it was the middle of the fall. Right. Uh, And and I wasn't going to really fit in in my pair of shorts and everything. (laughs) Uh, So but I I would have loved to have been just in the background standing there and probably looking dopey. if it had worked out. But anyway, uh, I'm, we're, we're looking forward to actually seeing that scene and how it plays out because it's kind of fun to have been there and seen it get filmed, I don't know, 15 times while we were there, you know, different angles, different yeah. takes on it. And again, I can see where as an actor, it could be a little tedious to just kind of do it over and over and over again. But once again, Melissa and, and JR was so cool about it yeah that's their job uh, you, know, that, you know that's what they do and, and 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 sometimes you don't see it but there's always subtleties i actually see it more in the editing process than i do when i'm actually watching it i got so much pressure on me when i'm i'm shooting it about you know time and resource management i'm always trying to like get it done quickly get make sure i have exactly what i need and make sure i i'm telling the story uh, so a lot of times I'll just work so fast that I won't have any, um, reference of which is the better take on the day. But then, then when you start watching, you realize there's subtle things that they do differently, uh, as good actors. They don't just regurgitate it and repeat the same thing over and over. So there's little subtle things that happen in their face that when edited correctly kind of evokes an emotional response from the audience, which is really amazing. And then, you, as you pointed out to me while we were there in the scene that we got to see them film, uh, from one ca- from one camera angle with them walking towards the camera, you see the Empire State Building in the background. <laughs> from the other angle with them walking away from the camera, you see Freedom Tower in the background. That's just something that might just be overlooked by people, but I think on a subliminal level, you're just kind of impressed with the grandeur of it all. And I, I think that's, that's just a, like little choices like that that I think people don't even realize are going into the, the planning process of these things. We always wanted to make New York City part of the framework as another character in Manifest. And I think in season two, uh, I had a bunch of scenes in the city. Uh, I think we shot by the Intrepid. Uh, and then season three, we had to pull, pull back and not shoot in the city because all the restrictions that were in the city uh, there was no room to park trucks anymore in the city because all the restaurants had a lot of the parking areas uh, using uh, during the pandemic. So it was nice uh, when we did go back out to the city the, the, the day you visited. I really wanted to make sure we understood we were in New York City. And and that's why I chose that corner where I was able to look both ways and see two iconic buildings of New York. Yeah, very, very cool. It yeah. really was. I, I thought that was great. Uh so now we're halfway through season four. Mm-hmm. We have ten episodes to go. We're, I know in my house we're, we're anxiously waiting. Is there any 
teaser or tidbit that you could throw out there that's not going to get you in trouble with Jeff Rake? Oh, I, I don't. And think, I'm not going to ask you to break any rules. No, no, no. <laughs> I, I, I don't think I can like even mention anything. To be honest with you, uh, it's okay. just uh, I wouldn't want to ruin it for anyone. And uh, it's. I think it's going to be very satisfying for everyone. I think the ending is, is, uh, it manifests itself into something that's like, wow. Okay. I, I got, sure. when I was watching it, I obviously I directed it. So I was watching the first cut. I had chills. I had the emotional response that I was hoping to get, uh, from an audience. And it's, and it's very difficult for me to get to that level, but I did have, yeah, you know, I've been with this for three years now, and it's uh, been such a part of me that watching it, I'm very proud of it. And I, I think everyone's going to really like it. Yeah, well, I, I got to tell you, like I said, we're looking forward to it, and I will give you my critique when it's done. Of course. And if I think it sucks, I'll tell yeah, you. Yeah, please do. <laughs> we are good enough friends that I could do that, but I can't imagine that that'll ever happen. Uh, so just to, to throw out there, we, you know, we were talking before we started to record what's on the what's up next for you i you know i'm i'm looking around i've been meeting with warner brothers and uh with netflix uh in la uh we'll see uh you know right now i don't have anything completely lined up but uh i'm sure something will surface have you uh just and this is really just me coming off the cuff here curious have you got any kind of ideas for projects where you'd say "Ooh, i would love to be the showrunner slash guide to create I, this vision I do have a show in my head that I need to put to paper and I'm trying to push myself out of the comfort zone of the zones I'm in and push myself into that writing zone and try to get it down on paper so I can sell it. Cause I realize all you have to do is give, get something down and then you can start the process of selling it. So now that's uh, in this time that I'll be off between projects. I'll try to put that idea to paper and then, Put it out there and see if anyone bites. <laughs> okay, and I, I won't ask any further. On I, that I I've never. That I've, is, that I, might have, sure is... I might have said it out loud maybe three times already, and I'm I'm trying to like keep it internal and yeah. get it get no, it down. When when someone bites at it and you start actually pre-producing it, then I want you to tell me about it. Okay, and then I'll have you back on. Yes, talk we'll talk it. about it. Yes, we'll talk about it. It'll be interesting. That'd be an interesting podcast so if I could create the process because it's again every time i have moved up i you know I, I started as a in a camera rental house and became a camera assistant became a cinematographer and then moved my way up to into television and, and started directing uh then i started producing and directing so now you always look up above you and say man maybe i can do that and then it's like well maybe i can i have ideas maybe i can just solidify the idea it's all about the execution anyone can have an idea it's about execution and the execution needs to do that hard work of putting it down on paper so that you can communicate it to others and then just the uh, my last thought on that is uh, we have a mutual good friend uh, who is a writer uh, and has written a couple of published books my yep. fr our friend dan o'connor and that is kind of my dream vision is that one of his books will be produced as a film and that you'll direct it yes so, who well who knows i mean sons of the pope we'll see i like sons, sons of, of the pope. pope is i mean and and what's uh, what Car carney i think uh, i have it here yeah canny uh, c-a-n-n-i yeah yeah so uh yeah, yeah so we'll that's, see. that's that's so he's got his, his his sons of the pope which is a gangster uh story which is very very personal and then he's got connie which is uh, a horror story which is 
not quite so personal, but kind of spooky. Yeah. Uh, I think I think you could handle either one of them. If, yeah. If they hey, listen, I would love it. it. And if I can get my development game up, because that's the next kind of realm I need to play in. Uh, who knows? All right, thanks for making the time to come on with me here today. All right, it's been fun. I hope yeah. I gave you. It's always fun talking, but I don't think we've ever talked in such a formal setting before. No, no, no. It's interesting. It's interesting. Um, cool. This is great. Right, next time we'll next time we'll sit down and have dinner and a couple of beers instead of doing it this way. Excellent. All right. Uh, is that uh, it? We're done. Uh, well, that's it for the listeners. So okay. thank you everybody thank for you. listening, and we'll catch you next time. Bye bye. And watch manifest. Yes, please.